0: Welcome to Secondhand Stories. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. Thanks, as always, for choosing to slow down and listen up with us. We've been trying to work some themes into our episodes lately, and if they haven't been super obvious before, they should be this time. Today, we're bringing you two stories that reimagine classic folk tales. But first, I have a couple of announcements. First, in the last episode, I incorrectly pronounced one of our authors' names. It was Alice Kuzmenko, not Kuzmenko, who wrote Lavender. Usually I ask before the episode comes out, but I forgot this time, so I'm sorry, Alice, and thanks for the correction. Second, this week we were featured on a great website called Bookster. That's B O O K S T R. Emily Rose from episode 12, she wrote The Art of Body Combat, introduced us to them, and they were nice enough to write an article about us for their site. So thank you, Bookster and Emily. You can find them on the App Store, Google Play, or their website, bookster.com. Again, that's B-O-O-K-S-T-R.com. And you'll find some engaging articles about reading and book-related things. And they also have an expertly curated book recommendation service, which I would take advantage of if I didn't have about 80 unread books on my shelf already. Now let's get into the stories. First up, we have Edna Gart reading her story called The Hellmites Look for Justice. Edna Gart recently retired from teaching introductions to art, music, and literature at Oakland Community College in Auburn Hills, Michigan. She's been using this newfound freedom to juggle writing, music, visual arts, and fun with friends and family. Her teaching and published writing have focused on diverse cultural expressions of wisdom, beauty, and humor, as well as societal problems that people have given their all to overcome. She's written about arts and events in Native American, African American, and Jewish communities. In 2016, the Great Lakes Poetry Society published her song, On Common Ground, in its five-year anthology, Water Music. The song is about the love that transcends differences and celebrates them. For a number of years, Edna has been a member of Congregation Shir Tikva, a small Reform Jewish synagogue where she plays mandolin at music services. Shirtikva means Song of Hope. After she reads her story, Edna gives us a history of this folktale and a description of why she wrote the story. She even wrote and performed some music to lead in and out of the story, so take it away, Edna.
1: Wise men of Helm seek justice. This story is my expanded and updated retelling of an old Jewish folk-tale about the wise men of Helm. For listeners who have not yet heard of those sages, their wisdom is of a highly unusual nature. You'll see how that is. The elders of Helm were in a quandary. A student named Mo was considered to be a little bit off as compared to the others, had met with them and raised a question. We say we believe strongly in justice, he said. Is that right? The elders, who were also leaders of the town council, all nodded their heads. Then why is it that a few rich people— have a vast array of silks in the summer and wool coats in the winter, get so much to eat that they throw food away, get everything they need when they're sick, and accumulate more money than they know what to do with. Well, many people who work just as hard wear flimsy clothes all year round, get sick from hunger and dirty water, can't afford doctors, and can barely save enough to get by for a week. Today, some people might shrug off that question with the comment, Life isn't fair. But the Helmites hadn't evolved that far. One or two did admit later that they thought, It must be God's will. However, no one wanted to say that and get hit with a tirade about the prophet Amos and his views on greed and poverty. The town's elders had learned to consider all sides of a situation. One who had a trim white beard stroked it as he spoke thoughtfully. The young man has a point, he said. When people are so poor they can't keep warm, eat, or see doctors, they can spread plagues that affect all of us. We've seen that happen. The leaders decided to call a public meeting and invite everyone in the community to attend. After Model presented his question, most people agreed that this was a problem. But how could it be solved? I'll tell you what, said one councilman, who happened to like his clothes, meals, and money. You go out and find a place where there's more justice than there is here. When you do, bring it back to us, and we'll distribute it. Now, this young man was rather naive, so he decided to do just that. The town council gave him enough money to take care of himself for a week's journey and back. If he wanted to look further away than that, he'd have to earn the money along the route. In the first town, Model stopped at an inn. A few other travelers, who were good at sizing people up, invited him to have a drink with them. They would treat. Glad to have company, Model agreed. After he'd been plied with a few drinks, One of the other travelers asked him where he was going. I'm looking for justice so I can bring some home to my town, he said. The travelers looked at each other. Really, said one, what town is that? Helm. Ah, Helm, the man replied as his companions sighed in sympathy. Give us a few minutes, said one of the others. The three stepped into a back room to confer. When they came back, the first one told Model, You're in luck. We just talked to the innkeeper, and he happens to have a rare barrel of justice stored in his kitchen. Does justice come in a barrel? Model burst out incredulously. Well, finding it is usually a miracle, the other replied. And miracles come in unexpected forms, so one should be prepared to accept the unexpected. The only hitch is that justice is never free, but the innkeeper is willing to sell it to us. He knows we'll make good use of it. If you like, we'll buy it for you for just a small finder's fee. That will save you from taking a longer trip. Model, who was a true Helmite, asked them how much it would cost. He wasn't going to agree to something without knowing the price. "'How much do you have with you?' one of the men asked. Model took out the bag of coins he'd been given. "'That looks about right,' said the second traveler. "'But we don't want to leave you without anything for your trip home.' We'll give you a few coins from our finder's fee in case you need them on the way back. Impressed with their kindness, Model agreed, and his companions went to the kitchen to get the barrel. It was rather heavy, but someone had been thoughtful enough to put wheels on the bottom. The young Helmite marveled at that ingenuity. Be careful not to break the seal before you get back, the first traveler said. Justice can spoil very easily. Model carefully rolled the barrel home. When he got back to Helm, exhausted but happy, he went straight to the town hall where he was lucky enough to find several of the elders. I found it, he exclaimed, showing them the barrel. Call the whole town together and I'll show them what justice is like. He then told the elders about his adventure. The man who had sent him on the quest put up his hand. Maybe you should show it to us first, he said. Model agreed. One of the councilmen went to get a pry from the janitor's box and they carefully opened the lid. A terrible odor suddenly filled the room. The councilman held his nose and bent over to see what was inside. The barrel was filled with rotten fish. Model was distraught. He had found justice and brought it home, but it was rotten. Maybe the barrel hadn't been properly sealed. That must have been the problem, several elders assured him. But the councilmen themselves had a problem. Having brought up the issue before the whole town, they were left with a large number of people who were waiting for justice. Would the townspeople be satisfied with hearing it was rotten? The leaders conferred with each other quietly after Mata left. Then they came up with a dazzling solution. They would publish a decree throughout the town that thin, homespun clothing would now be called silk in the summer and wool in the winter. Bread and water would be called chicken pie and wine, and back alleys would be called hospitals. They would rename pebbles gold coins, which would buy all the imaginary goods anyone wanted. Helm was still a democracy, so the chief councilman announced that citizens could vote on the new decree at the next town council meeting. Some Helmites thought the name changes would be great. After all, it's the way people experience things that matters, one man said. If they can truly believe in the new names, The poor will be happy, and the rich won't have to give anything up. Others were understandably confused. If some people say snow is snow, and others say it's manna from heaven, one man said, how are we to know what to believe? The time came, however, and a vote was taken. By a slim margin, the Helmites voted to give the new solution a chance. A friend of Model's tried to cheer him up as they were walking home from the council meeting. Let's wait and see, he said. Maybe the new names will help everyone think positively. We know that good energy can bring good events. This could be the revolution we heard was coming. I don't think so, said Model, whose credulity had changed after his experience. Younger children soon created their own responses to the new paradigm. While some adults were waiting for its good energy to manifest itself, and others were shaking their heads, the children began to make up their own games. Look at my new silk dress, a little girl in rags said to her friend. Do you like it? It's lovely, said her friend, who was similarly dressed. I think I'll buy one to match it, and we can go have dinner in my father's famous restaurant. I'll treat you to roast duck, potatoes, and carrots. Okay, and I'll buy strawberry pie with sherbet and after-dinner cocktails to go with it. A lady with a fancy hat who saw them playing on the street remarked to her husband, Look how those children are enjoying themselves. They don't mind poverty at all. What's within is all that counts. By the middle of the next winter, however, an increasing number of people realized that rags don't keep anyone warm in sub-zero weather, hunger and lack of clean water make people sick, and back alleys don't cure diseases no matter what names you give them. When it finally became clear that conditions were getting worse, several citizens demanded another council meeting. What are we to do, a man asked. If we couldn't institute justice, does that mean we have to institute injustice? After several attempts at coming up with an answer, the chief councilman adjourned the meeting promising to call another one at a future date. While all this was happening, the women of Helm were only guests at the town council. That was how things were done in those days. After the last adjournment, however, several decided they had had enough. They got together on their own at the house of a lady who had a large kitchen. After she had poured some tea, they started to brainstorm. If no one could find justice, one woman suggested, maybe we could find something else to tell us where it is. That's an interesting idea, another lady murmured. Or we can make it ourselves, said a third. A little girl who had come with her older sister raised her hand excitedly. I know, she exclaimed. Maybe we can find truth. That might show us where justice is or how to make it. After a moment of stunned silence, her sister pointed out, they are almost the same thing. In fact, it would be pretty impossible to find justice without it. A shared intake of breath could be heard as everyone marveled at the originality of that insight. So they started scouring the town hall, searching in every crack and under every rafter to see if somewhere there might be some truth hidden away. And lo and behold, a miracle happened, a real one this time. Inside a crevice where an old stone had been replaced, they found a letter. Carefully, one of the ladies pulled it out. Its paper was turning brown, but the writing was still legible. They saw that the letter was from an old Talmudic scholar. It read, Dear Children, Truth and justice can seem very complicated at times because there are so many truths and so many rights and wrongs, it's hard to combine them all. But when you come down to it, Both might be simpler than they seem. The Talmud has a saying, no one can serve two masters. You either serve God or the golden eagle. The golden eagle means worship of money and power. All kinds of things can pass for serving God, but our traditions tell us, be good to yourself and each other. Do that and all the colorful illusions the golden eagle has spun will become translucent and disappear. The Helm of Jewish Folklore is a fictional version of a real Polish town by that name. In stories, it is often presented as a Jewish community because the storytellers are laughing at their own problems. Like citizens of legendary towns of fools in other cultures, the wise men of Helm are known for their colossal obtuseness. In one widely told anecdote, a Helmite is carrying a bunch of logs down a hill. A traveler sees him when he's almost finished. Why don't you just roll them down, the traveler asks. That's a good idea, the Helmite says. He then proceeds to carry the logs back up the hill so he can roll them down. Differing versions of the story about justice have been published by Itzhak Manger and Solomon Simon. In my retelling, the edition about the women and most details beyond the basic plot are original. The Talmudic scholar whose letter they discover at the end is a fictional character based on my grandfather, Herschel Guber. His letters to our family always began. Dear Children, My grandfather came to America from the Ukraine in the early 20th century when he was in his late teens. He made his living as an upholsterer, not a professional scholar, but he passed on a wealth of stories and sayings, often giving them his own interpretations. When I was a child, we heard many of those stories in my grandmother's large kitchen, where she served tea and homemade pastries to open-ended numbers of guests. I was inspired to retell this story about justice by the 2016 election and its aftermath. In particular, some people I heard on television, who seemed to have a gift for calling things by their opposites, opened up the creative process for me. It doesn't matter what medium you use, my grandfather told me once, as long as you tell people the truth. Contemporary events have highlighted the contrast between shared values that are central to me and the unmitigated worship of what my grandfather called the Golden Eagle.
0: A big thank you to Edna Gart, not only for reading her story, but for writing and performing some music for us, explaining her inspiration for the story, and also for being very flexible and accommodating for us. So thanks, Edna. Next up, we have Warren Rochelle's story, Feathers. Warren Rochelle has taught English at the University of Mary Washington since 2000. Rochelle's short fiction has appeared in such journals as the North Carolina Literary Review, Forbidden Lines, Aboriginal Science Fiction, Colonnades, Graffiti, Collective Fallout, queerfish 2, J.L. Her Book, Empty Oaks, Icarus, Quantum Fairy Tales, and Romance and Beyond. His short story, The Golden Boy, published in The Silver Griffin, was a finalist for the 2004 Galactic Spectrum Award for Best Short Story. Rochelle is the author of three novels, The Wild Boy, 2001, Harvest of Changelings, 2007, and The Called, 2010, all published by Golden Griffin Press. He also published a critical work on Le Guin and academic articles in various journals and essay collections. His fourth novel, The Werewolf and His Boy, was published by Samhain Publishing in September 2016. Feathers, is part of a collection in progress of gay-themed retellings of traditional fairy tales, and I will reveal which fairy tale Feathers is based on after the story, if you can't already guess it. Also, just as a heads up, I attempt to make some bird noises in this story, and I know they aren't accurate. I'm sorry about that, but it's the best I could do. Warren Rochelle's story, Feathers. When the lightning flashed, Grogan could see all the way down to the water the world was white, frozen in the moment. A rowboat had slammed into the dock, breaking in half. Between flashes, all Grogan could see was the dark and the shadows of trees buffeted by the wind and rain. The weatherman had been right about this out-of-season late-November storm. 4.12 a.m. glowed white on the cable box on the other side of the living room, but Grogan knew he might as well get up. Another explosion of light, more thunder, It sounded like a bowling alley. Eddie loved bowling. Fuck that. Fuck Eddie, Grogan muttered, getting up, his back stiff and sore, as he knew it would be from a night on the couch. He let the gray flannel blanket he had slept under drop to the floor. Wasn't two years of grieving for a failed relationship enough? Lorraine, his best friend, certainly thought so, and had told him just that yesterday afternoon at Hyperion up in Fredericksburg, over her chai latte and his Earl Grey. They met there two or three times a week after Grogan's afternoon office hours at the University of Mary Washington before he headed down to Richmond. Make a move, Grogan, leave that house. It's practically a museum of what went wrong. Two hours later, his therapist, down in Richmond, had agreed. I don't know how. We cuddled under that blanket. Thunder. Wind whipping the trees. Rain beating against the house. A bright flash of the lake, roiling white with froth. Something else white on the dark floor of the deck, just outside the door. Grogan walked over and pressed his face to the glass, shading his eyes. What the hell? He opened the door and picked up what looked like a white shag carpet. It was actually a feathered cape. With webbed feet and a beak. A bird stole? Grogan muttered. He threw the mess down and let the rain lash his face. He loved storms. This time, the lightning and thunder was so close, Grogan thought for a second his house, or another townhouse in his row, had been hit. White light was everywhere, an early explosion of dawn. A naked man lay face down in the water, just beyond the splintered dock and the broken boat. Grogan ran down his backyard and into the cold, cold water, a wave slapping him hard in the chest. Gasping, slipping on the mud, he finally got to the man and dragged him to the concrete retaining wall. Oh my god, is he dead? What do I do first? Think, think. CPR, mouth to mouth. Cursing, as the man's legs scraped on the concrete, Grogan pulled him out of the water. First, tilt his head back, freeze air passage, pinch his nose. God, he is so cold. Breathe, one, two, breathe. Nothing. Again. Breathe, one, two, breathe. The man gasped, jerked, and threw up a lot of dirty lake water. Grogan picked up the coughing man in a fireman's carry and ran to his house. He's so light. Rain blew through the open door. He stumbled inside, kicked the door closed, and set the man on the couch. The man lying there was small and had long fingers and webbed toes that seemed darker in comparison to the rest of his pale skin. Was that because of the cold? Wrap him up, get him warm, quick, quick, the gray flannel blanket, there! He lay down beside him and pulled the man against his chest. Grogan could feel the man breathing. He smelled of lake water, wet earth, leaves, and wind. His hair was white, fine, close to his skull. He stirred and opened his eyes, shockingly dark, dark brown against his pale skin. Grogan sat up very carefully. I should get you to a doctor. How on earth did you wind up in that lake in the middle of a storm? Grogan asked, glancing outside. That last rumble hadn't been as close or as loud. The storm was passing. The man shook his head. I just pulled you out of a freezing lake and you are one big bruise. You need to see a doctor, okay? Ooh, ooh, ooh. No, please. Just let me sleep, please, the man whispered, his voice low and melodic. Grogan could barely hear or understand him. The man turned so he faced Grogan, and spoke again, this time louder. Sleep, I'll be all right, please. Then, slowly, he rolled over just enough to free an arm, and very carefully touched and gently pressed Grogan's cheek. Thank you. But who are you? What happened? Where are your clothes? Sleep. Ooh, sleep, the man repeated, and pressed Grogan's cheek again. This time, Grogan felt a sudden warmth, and unaccountably he pressed back, pushing his cheek against the man's hand. A moment later, muttering that this was against his better judgment, and that he couldn't believe he was doing this, Grogan went upstairs and cleared off his guest room bed, he used like a spare desk for his school stuff, notebooks, the novels he assigned for his fancy lit class, ungraded and graded essays. Then, still shaking his head and muttering, he went back to scoop up the shivering man in the gray blanket and carried him upstairs. The man's body was so light he felt as if he was putting a child to bed, but this was no child's body he covered with an extra blanket and quilt. Who are you? Do you have a name? What happened to you? I. my name is. (laughs) he said slowly, and repeated the sound as he rolled his head in a full circle, once, twice. Grogan stared at the man. Your name? The man shook his head, sighing. Cobb. Call me Cobb. I don't remember what happened. You had to think about your name? amnesia? And what's with the weird noises anyway? Later, after breakfast and after checking on Cobb for the tenth time, Grogan made himself clean the storm debris off his deck, saving the birdskin to show Lorraine, leave crackers and water on the nightstand by the man's bed, and then go grocery shopping. Pushing the cart at Martin's, there was one sharp moment when he thought of calling Eddie. No. When Grogan came home, he could tell the house wasn't empty, can't believe he's still here. Is he a polar bear clubber who got lost? A storm skinny dipper thrill seeker? He says he doesn't remember. Shock from whatever happened? Was he robbed, thrown out of the car in the middle of the storm? I should call the police. A doctor? What the hell am I doing? Leaving the grocery bags on the counter, he went upstairs, determined to take matters in hand. The man was awake, barely, his eyes half open, his skin even paler. Grogan felt Cobb's forehead. Something in that dirty lake water? You are burning up. You have to go to a doctor. No. Ooh, no. And the man clutched at him, holding tight to his arm. He pressed his hand to Grogan's face again. Grogan felt a faint shiver down his spine, a spasm in his neck. His grandmother called it, What happened when someone walked on your grave? Grogan didn't call a doctor or the police, nor did he take Cobb to the ER or urgent care. Instead, he cared for him. He made the man take Tylenol and then sips of water. He bathed his face with a cool washcloth when Cobb finally fell asleep again. Grogan checked him every two hours and gave him Tylenol every four. Grogan finally called the rain early in the afternoon. Grogan Gordon McAllister, you did what? Lorraine married Logan Caulfield, I saw a drowning man and I rescued him. What else could I do? A naked man, a complete stranger, and you have him in your house? In your guest room? Grogan, are you crazy? Call the police, call a doctor. Lorrainey, he gets really upset whenever I mention either one of those. I think he must have gotten lost. Grogan trailed off, knowing he was sounding demented. It's like I'm compelled to keep him a secret. He knew if he even attempted to explain that to Lorraine, she would be sure. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, he had slipped over the edge. I think he's got some kind of amnesia. He doesn't remember what happened. Amnesia? He needs a doctor. I'm on the way. No, no, Lorraine, I'll handle this. I'm okay, really, Grogan said quickly, cutting her off. He knew he was one of her projects. Get him over Eddie, get him out, look after him. And she was nothing, if not relentless, with the project. I'll take care of it, he added, somewhat surprised that he was still certain that keeping a total stranger in his house was completely okay and the right thing to do. He heard gagging and heaving. I gotta go. He's sick. Monday, Hyperion. After office hours. Grogan ran upstairs. He called in sick on Monday. Cobb had been sick all weekend. Fever and chills, nausea, vomiting, and asking for something. What? Grogan couldn't figure out. Gatorade, ginger ale, crackers, and cold compresses, and finally, just holding him and letting Cobb touch him, his long pale fingers light on Grogan's skin. By Sunday night, the worst was over. Grogan was exhausted. He fell asleep in Cobb's bed, and when he woke up, it was twenty minutes before his first class. Grogan had staggered to the phone, mumbled to the departmental secretary, and staggered back. He felt Cobb's hands light on his back, and he fell asleep. Lorraine called that afternoon. Did you not hear me on Friday? You know nothing about this guy, and now you're playing nursemaid to him? What is wrong with this picture? I'm not playing nursemaid. He was really sick. I think he may still be. Well, at least exhausted. I'll see you tomorrow. Let me go finish cleaning up, okay? Grogan, don't make me come down there. If you're not here tomorrow afternoon, I will. Lorraine would, too. After running two loads of laundry through the washer and dryer, he finally put away the strange bird skin, folding it carefully and placing it in an old chest in the attic where he kept his quilts, in the corner by his hat collection. Clean and dry, it was a beautiful white, and soft, soft, soft. Lorraine was in full glare when he sat down in front of her at Hyperion, his earl grey, his shield. I will enlighten you, Grogan said. Yes, please illuminate. That was their ongoing game, matching synonyms. That she was willing to play meant she wasn't that mad. "'He's a good person,' Grogan said slowly, knowing he was repeating what he had been telling himself, as if the act of saying it again would somehow make it true. "'He's beautiful, and I feel wanted in a way I haven't since Eddie left.' "'You're not falling for this stranger, are you?' "'Don't be ridiculous, Lorraine.' I did a tarot reading last night about you and this guy. Grogan sighed and sipped his Earl Grey. Tarot readings for Lorraine were like a nurse taking a patient's vitals. These just happened to be psychic. When he went to the SFRA conference in the spring, she made him take a sachet of mugwort for safe travels. She kept a collection of magical stones and crystals, all with various properties. Sometimes he believed her. Changes, Grogan. That's what the cards were telling me. Enormous changes are coming. Big decisions to be made. Are you listening to me? You need to do something. Move on. Join that 40-something group you were telling me about down in Richmond. The primetimers. Smudge the house with that sage, cedar, and sweetgrass I gave you. You've done your good deed with the stranger. Now take care of yourself. Lorraine loved to talk. Grogan finally interrupted her midstream after checking his watch. If he was going to avoid any of the afternoon rush hour in Richmond, he'd better get going. Cobb was waiting for him. I know almost nothing about him beyond his first name. He still doesn't remember what happened to put him in that lake. We haven't even talked, really, Grogan told himself that evening while he was getting ready for bed, knowing he was telling himself the same things over and over. Cobb had been asleep when he finally got back from Fredericksburg and Lorraine's well-intentioned advice, psychic and otherwise still asleep just a few minutes ago. He put away his toothbrush and stared at himself in the mirror over the sink. But I do know something about him, don't I? Cobb was kind and gentle and good. That was enough, right? I thought I knew Eddie and look how that turned out. Tightening the sash on his robe, Grogan went to check on Cobb one last time. The guest bedroom was dark, except for the lamp by the bed. Cobb stood at the window. A pale silhouette looking through the blinds into the parking lot. The yellow light softened the white of Cobb's hair, his skin. You're awake, Grogan whispered when he stood by him, wondering if Cobb saw something in the asphalt, the bright white streetlights, the trees, the cars. Thank you, Grogan. You woo, have been very kind to me, Cobb finally said, and leaned into Grogan, his head on Grogan's shoulder. A stranger. You took me in. You didn't have to. My touch, you could have resisted. It's not really that strong. What is he talking about? I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. It's in the Bible. I mean, it was the right thing to do. But you keep doing it and your friend tells you not to. Why is that? Cobb asked softly, and half-turned to Grogan and very carefully placed his hand on Grogan's cheek. Not the coercive touch. I don't need that with you, whoo, whoo, anymore. I don't understand, Grogan said. Cobb kissed him then and pulled away, his head cocked in question as he slipped his bathrobe off his shoulders and let it fall to the floor. I think, thought, that you would understand that, yes, it is the right thing to do, but not because I took care of you, and you're vulnerable, and... Cobb kissed him again, and Grogan let him untie his robe and push it off, touch him, and touch him, and kiss him, and touch him, and lead him from the window into the bed. Lorraine came down to meet Cobb on Saturday along with a good-sized vegetarian lasagna. It was after the meal that she and Grogan finally talked. Grogan, walk me to the car, okay? Lorraine said. She had just said goodnight to Cobb and had wrapped up her vegetarian lasagna in aluminum foil. Grogan eyed her warily from the sink where he was finishing up the last of the dishes. Cobb was upstairs watching some bird special on Animal Planet, saying he knew they wanted to talk. All right, he said and dried his hands, and followed her out the front door. She put the lasagna on the floor of the back seat and turned to him, her arms folded across her chest. He could just see her face in the dark, the streetlight behind her. Grogan, he's weird. I can't put my finger on it. I'll ask Tara when I get home. But he's really weird. Even his name, Cobb Whistler, sounds weird. I know, but he makes me happy. I haven't felt this happy since things went south with Eddie. I know, but you still don't know where he came from, and neither does he. That's a lot of mystery. You can't live with that much mystery all the time. Not you. I can. For now. I don't need to know all that. Not right now. She sighed and hugged him. All right. Hyperion on Monday, okay? Don't make me come ferret you out. Comprende? No search party. Affirmative. Call me when you get there. Grogan waved her off and watched until her car had disappeared, wishing as he always did that Lorraine would give in and get a new one. He worried that she would break down on 95 every time she drove back to Fredericksburg. He looked up then at what he was starting to call Cobb's bedroom. The light was still on. Cobb was waiting for him. Cobb Whistler? You're joking, right? Grogan looked over his wine glass at Martin Fairweather, a biology professor, wishing he had not stayed in Fredericksburg for the faculty holiday reception. He hated big faculty gatherings. It had been a week, and a good week, since Lorraine had come to dinner, met Cobb, and grudgingly gave her approval. No, Marty, I'm not joking, he said slowly. Why do you say that? Does he think he's a swan? Cobbs are male swans, Grogan. Whistling swan is an old name for the tundra swan. Their wings make a whistling noise in flight. Grogan managed to extricate himself from talking to Marty, who was sometimes a little overbearing. After some more shrimp, and shaking hands with the dean and the president, he snuck out. It wasn't until he was halfway home to Richmond that he remembered the birdskin he had found a few yards away from where he found Cobb. Marty is full of it. I teach fancy lit. I don't live it. Well, except with Lorraine and her cards and her stones and her herbs. When Grogan finally got home and eased into the quiet, but not empty house, he didn't immediately go upstairs and slide into bed beside the sleeping cob. He sat down in his leather armchair and turned on his laptop. Swans, swan maids, swan maidens, swan knights, Leda and Zeus, tundra swans, whistling swans, he read and read and read. Finally, he stopped almost overwhelmed with facts and stories. Somehow the man, the husband, got his hands on the bird skin, then the woman. Marriage, children, and ordinary life, until she found the skin. She always found it, and she always escaped. She never came back. Tundra swans, once called whistling, in great flocks migrated south in November to the east coast, the Chesapeake Bay. A limited open hunting season in some western states. An aroused tundra swan is quite a formidable opponent. Grogan pressed the icon to hear a tundra swan. Woohoo. Woo-hoo-hoo. He played the tundra swan's cry over and over again until he couldn't, knowing he was going to cry if he kept listening. He closed his laptop and set it on the floor. Then he took a deep breath and picked up the phone and scrolled down his caller ID list and punched Lorraine's number. Lorraine, Did I wake you? He asked, even though he knew it was okay. That was their deal. They could call each other, no matter how late, if they really, really, really had to call. This was definitely three realies and a had. This better be good, Lorraine grumbled, words thick with sleep. Grogan went through the evidence, point by point. Then, he waited. Lo. That explains all the tarot spreads, with so many swords. They're associated with air. All right, he's a swan. What are you going to do with him? Grogan hesitated before he answered. He knew what he was going to say, but he was afraid he also knew what she would say in response. I love him. I want him to stay. I'm going to keep him here. Let him stay. Lorraine sighed. Maybe all those other men in the stories didn't know, but you do. You know how these stories end. The wife finds the feather skin or the seal skin, and she's gone. She never comes back. What makes you think the gay swan version is going to be any different? He wasn't surprised she so easily believed that fairy tales were true. What surprised him was that it was easy for him, to. Huber Scrogan. I don't have to tell you this. Try to outwit the gods, and you get bit on the butt or worse. Let him go before you get your heart broken all over again. No gods are involved. Please, let him go, she repeated. This won't work out. It's the wrong kind of a fairy tale for a happy ending. I want him to stay. I love him. You're my best friend. I love you, but you've walked into a fairy tale, and you're trying to change the script. That's foolish. I'm going back to sleep. She hung up. I'm not being foolish. I'm not. I'm not. He said into the phone. Cobb, Cobb, Cobb. He couldn't seem to get enough, and Cobb seemed as obsessed, as crazy about him. But at night, when Grogan would wake up to the warmth of the other man's body against his own, bare skin to bare skin. He knew it wasn't just sex for either of them. When Cobb came and found him for a walk by the lake, taking him by the hand, he knew this was something else. Grogan stopped therapy to spend more time with Cobb. Lorraine complained loudly that she never saw him and reminded him that obsession was not a good thing. Grogan didn't want to hurt her, but Cobb was here. Their lake walks became a daily ritual. They would make at least one complete circuit starting and ending at Grogan's back deck. Sometimes, even though he knew Cobb loved the walks, he wished they would walk anywhere else. Small talk with his neighbors left him uneasy and a little scared. Grogan tried to make such interactions short and sweet. Grogan was even more uncomfortable when Cobb had encounters with ducks and geese. He tried to cut these short, too, until one walk early on a Sunday morning in February. His three doors down on the right neighbor, Lizzie Evans, was out with her aging shih tzu, Toby, and she had things to say to Grogan. Cobb walked on ahead. So you really think I should get a new... Whoa, look at him and those birds, Grogan, Lizzie said in amazement, touching his arm and pointing. He's talking to them. They love him. He must be an amazing ornithologist. Yeah, he is, Grogan said, staring. Canadian ornithologist on sabbatical, studying swan migration, whom he met at a faculty party, was the cover story they had concocted. The ducks and geese were all around him. The birds pushed against him, pressing and rubbing their head against his legs, taking the cracked corn out of his hands, honking, quacking, and flapping their wings. More were coming, flying in for quick watery landings. Cobb was talking to them. They know him. They know what he is. He knows them. They will take him from me to out there, up there. That Cobb had been asking Grogan to take him places and started asking why they didn't really talk to his neighbors or go inside their houses made this moment all the more fearful. Lorraine had been insisting on the same things. Grogan's fear as he watched the ducks and geese with Cobb was fast becoming terror. He said goodbye to Lizzie and quickly walked after Cobb. Stopping at the gazebo when three big Canadian geese shoved their way to the center of the loud flock. He sat down, almost paralyzed with fear and love. Grogan. Grogan jerked his head up. Cobb stood in front of him, his bag of cracked corn empty. They'd have to go to the feed store for more. The birds, at a gesture from Cobb, dispersed. Cobb stared at him, and then slowly touched Grogan's face. You know what I am, yes? Cobb asked, and then sat down beside Grogan, leaning into him. The sky was gray. The air smelled of cold and snow. The ducks and geese stood just outside the gazebo, staring reverently at Cobb, honking and quacking. Grogan realized he'd never been the outsider, the only one of his kind, before that moment. Yes? Cobb repeated softly. Krogan nodded. I figured it out. Took me a while to wrap, to accept reality as not what I thought it was, he said, after swallowing what he was about to say, to wrap my head around it. Cobb had a hard time with figurative language. Is that why you keep me to yourself? I'm afraid of what will happen out there, up there. I'm afraid you'll leave me. I'm here. I can't go home. I can't migrate. I can't change back. No skin. Let me be here. Cobb, you are here. Let me be here all the way. Like you, like the Rainy. Come and go. Oh, Cobb, don't ask me that, Grogan cried to Cobb's retreating back. The door to Cobb's bedroom, the room he had been sharing with Cobb, was shut that night, and it was still shut the next morning. You aren't going anywhere until we have a palaver, a discussion, a talk. Grogan, sit down. Here, your second favorite drink. Skinny hazelnut latte, a packet of Splenda, Lorraine said two afternoons later. She'd appeared in his office, coffees in hand, brushing aside his saying he wanted to go home. Why haven't I seen Cobb since Christmas? You know how shy he is, Grogan said quickly, hoping to derail her. Because I'm terrified he's going to leave me, especially now that he knows that I know what he is. I don't want to lose him. Grogan took a deep sip of coffee. He likes being at home. He looks after the house. Bashful? Bullshit. You've never been a good liar, Lorraine said, one eyebrow raised. Grogan gave up. He knew that look. He asked me the same thing. Now he's not talking to me. Lorraine burst out laughing. Good for him. Let him be a part of all your life. You're keeping him a prisoner. He bristled. I am not keeping Cobb incarcerated. Cloistered away then, Lorraine said evenly. You don't go out to eat. You turn down every invitation you get for anything. I think I'm the only person who's met him, except for your next door neighbors. You tried to keep Eddie, and you know how well that turned out. He's sentient, Grogan. He's a person, and this is wrong. It wasn't my fault that he left. He had a fucking affair, remember? Look, I have to go. Stop shouting. Yes, he had an affair, and that was wrong, wrong, wrong. But you held on to him so tight he could barely breathe, just like you are. I'm not shouting! Grogan shouted as he grabbed his briefcase and stormed out of the room. He stopped shaking by the time he got to his car. I love him. I'm keeping him safe. They'd lock him away. I'm making him happy. Lorraine doesn't know anything. He's not human. He doesn't know how to be one. He eats grass and weeds and makes crazy noises. He paces all the time at night. I am not keeping him a prisoner. I'm not holding on too much. I'm not. That litany, repeated with a few variations, cycling from high to low volume, got him halfway home to Richmond. By the time he turned off 95 onto 295, he was exhausted, and had exhausted his argument. Lorraine was right. So was Cobb. Both of them were formidable when aroused. When he pulled into his parking space in front of the house, he called her, apologized, and arranged to swap dinner, starting with Lorraine coming down this Saturday. Ten minutes later, Grogan and Cobb were on their way to Trader Joe's to get groceries. Except for an embarrassing scene with the corn on the cob, the field trip to Trader Joe's went okay. Their next adventure was to his four doors down on the right neighbor, Rachel Grossman, for drinks. This also went okay, even if Cobb's encounter with Rachel's obnoxious parrot, Squawky, was peculiar. At least the Canadian ornithologist story sort of explained Cobb's intense conversation with the bird. Grogan could see Cobb was happy. He was doing the right thing. That the geese were still in Richmond meant that Cobb could get past this migration urge. Things would be all right. When Grogan came back from the grocery store Saturday night with the last of what he needed for dinner, Lorraine opened the door. He knew immediately something was wrong. My afternoon client canceled, so I got here early. I thought I could help. We could cook together the way we used to. You weren't here, Cobb said you'd gone to the store. I'm so sorry, Grogan. I didn't know. I'm really sorry. She was wringing her hands. Sorry for what? Lorraine, you just tell me, Grogan said, as he carefully put the bags down on the counter and started taking out the leaf lettuce, cucumbers, tomatoes, celery. Lorraine loved salads. So did Cobb. The fresher the better. What happened? Hats. I wore my big, wide-brimmed hat with that yellow scarf you gave me. He'd never seen it and tried it on and we started talking about hats and I showed him the ones in your bedroom closet. We tried them on and I told him about the ones in your attic when we did the 500 hats of Bartholomew Cubbins, remember, for that party? He wanted to see those hats. He found the quilt chest and looked in there for more hats. You let him go up in the attic? Grogan said, trying not to be terrified. Yes, she did. Both Grogan and Lorraine startled and turned to see Cobb standing in the kitchen doorway. The white-feathered birdskin was in his hands. You lied to me, Grogan. You kept me here as your prisoner, he said slowly, his words measured, hard, sharp. I'm so sorry. I'd better go. I didn't mean... Lorraine's voice trailed off, and she stepped back to the kitchen table, looking first at Grogan, then at Cobb. The smell from the bread in the machine, two minutes from being done, filled the room. She reached behind her and pulled the blinds. You wanted him to find this. Lorraine, you did it on purpose. No, no, Grogan, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't. I swear. I didn't even know where you hid it. You never told me. I didn't even know you still had it. Stop, Cobb snapped. You lied to her and to me, Grogan. You lied. It's not like that. I love you, and I wanted to keep you safe, and I didn't want you to leave. In all the stories, the swan maidens never come back. Things are good, aren't they? Grogan pleaded, hating the desperation in his voice. I have to go. Soon. I must. I must migrate. I feel it in me, pulling me back to the sky, to the flock. You can't. Grogan, I love you, but you can't keep me. But you're not just a swan. You're a man. I made love to a man, not a bird. Don't go, Cobb, please don't go. The swan wives didn't feel the migration pull, right? I read some geese don't feel it. They learned to stay put. So could you. The bread machine beeped. Without letting go of the bird skin, Cobb wrestled off his clothes until he stood there, naked. Cobb, please, please, please. Grogan whispered and slid down to the floor, his hands covering his face. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so, so, so sorry. He wept. Cobb took three, four steps and laid his hands on Grogan's head. He sat beside him and gently, with the tips of his fingers, turned Grogan's head to face him. I am air and earth. I am water. I am swan and man. The bird flies north, north, far north. The bird must. Those wives paced and paced and ate and ate like I did. Not migrating hurts. That got left out. The man loves. This is just a touch, no coercion. I don't know if I could learn to not migrate. That knowledge is so deep. I don't understand, Grogan whispered. Cobb explained. A survival mechanism for swan folk. Direct contact to make the touched susceptible to suggestion. That had been left out of the fairy tales, too. Cobb stood and began to wrap himself in the white-feathered skin, his body shifting, shrinking as he did, his neck elongating, his nose darkening, stretching, and sharpening. His arms stretched, stretched, sprouting feathers. He cried in pain as his body realigned, remade itself. The swan flapped its wings and spoke woo, woo Woo. It extended its neck, and gently plucked at Grogan's hair, nipped his chest. Then it plucked at its own chest, and pushed something into Grogan's hand. Then it turned to look at Lorraine and back at Grogan, and then at the door. He needs to go, Grogan, Lorraine said softly, still stunned from watching Cobb's transformation. She held out her hand to Grogan as the swan went out into the front hall to wait by the door. He got up slowly, his body stiff, and let her lead him. You should be the one to open the door and let him go. Grogan did as she asked, as the swan kept asking. Then they both got out of the swan's way. It looked back at both of them, first Grogan, then Lorraine. It half raised its wings, but the front hall was too narrow for its full wingspan. The swan bent its neck and pushed its head gently against Grogan's stomach, rubbed against his leg. Grogan wiped his face and then very, very carefully petted the white head, stroked the long neck, the soft chest. He kissed the swan's head and stepped back. The swan flexed its chest, turned, and was out the door. They followed it outside and watched as it took off into the night sky. They could hear the whistle of its wings as it circled once around the parking lot and flew away. He's gone, Lorraine. I loved him and he's gone. Everyone I love leaves. It's my fault. Open your hand. What? Open your hand, she said patiently, and when he still could only stare at her, she took Rogan's right hand and uncurled his fingers. One long, glowing white feather. What does it mean? A promise? A farewell? She closed his hand back over the feather and hugged him, and then, shivering, went inside leaving the door half-open behind her. Grogan said nothing, and watched the sky for a long time. Thank you, Warren, for your story based on the Swan Maiden fairy tales, and thank you for your patience with us. Thanks again to Bookster for their nice article about us. Thanks as always to my co-producer, Colleen Stewart, and thanks to you for slowing down and listening up with us today. During the month of March, the podcasting community is trying to get more people to listen to podcasts. 45% of people have never even heard of podcasts. Can you believe that? So if you're a fan of this show, or any show, we're asking you to find someone you know who doesn't know about podcasts and tell them how great this free entertainment service is. If they can't figure it out or don't know what to do, grab their phone and show them how easy it is to subscribe to podcasts. Recommend any show you think they'll like, not necessarily this one, because there's something out there for everybody and maybe short stories just aren't their thing. Tweet about your favorite shows or why you listen to podcasts with the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. Thanks. We'll be back in two weeks.